Good evening. Well, I'm very surprised. Lots of people are now talking about immigration, even a big piece in The Times today, arguing the numbers are unsustainable. Now, I do owe you all an apology, because I said last Thursday that 830,000 people in the year to March had been given leave to stay in the United Kingdom. And many were stunned by that figure. I apologise, it was wrong. It's actually one million. The numbers are mind-blowing, let alone, of course, the more visible aspects of this, what is coming across the English Channel. Well, we can reveal today exclusively here on GB News that 30,000 hotel rooms are being used every single night by asylum seekers at a cost, well, we previously knew this bit, of £5 million every single day. One of the alternatives to this that was revealed by Boris Johnson at Lyd Airport a few weeks ago as part of the big Rwanda package was that Linton on Ouse, an ex-RAF base up in North Yorkshire, would house 1,500 asylum seekers. Well, Mark White, GB News's Home Affairs and Security Editor, has been today at Linton on Ouse to find out what the local reaction is. And my question to you, and maybe think through when you see this package, what is the best thing to do with asylum seekers? Is it to put them in hotels or is it to put them in places like Linton on Ouse? Let me know your thoughts, Farage at gbnews.uk. Let's go to Linton on Ouse right now. On the seafront in Eastbourne, this hotel would normally be home to some of the many tourists who visit this East Sussex resort. But these guests are not holidaymakers. They're asylum seekers, some of the tens of thousands who are currently placed in hotel accommodation. It's an understandably sensitive issue. As we filmed, this home office minder filmed us. Another tried to persuade the guests to go back inside. And as I tried to speak to some of them, I was told I couldn't. They're not allowed to speak. They are guests. Well, they are allowed to speak. No, they can't give any, any statement to you. That's official. You're telling us on behalf know, of the Home Office that these people are not allowed to speak to us. Is that what you're telling us? You can speak. They are not know English. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Thank you. In broken English, the two men told me they were both 27 and from Iran, but wouldn't say how they got to the UK. We've been told that every day, around 30,000 hotel rooms across the country are requisitioned by the Home Office to house asylum seekers. It's costing close to £5 million each day and is clearly unsustainable. This hotel near Bristol Airport Another where business travellers and holidaymakers are unable to book their rooms. And when they ask why, as John Northfield did, they're simply told to contact the Home Office. I actually booked it through uh, booking.com and they said if I wanted an explanation I would have to try and contact the hotel direct, um, and I, which I did try and do that, but uh, obviously they weren't very forthcoming as to why the hotel was being closed for 12 months. The need for radical solutions prompted the move to adapt this old RAF base at Linton-on-Ouse in North Yorkshire for use as an accommodation centre. But its close proximity to the village of Linton-on-Ouse has enraged locals like Catherine Dryden, who fears that an influx of bored young men is just asking for trouble. They are, they are going to be bored out of their schools. There is no infrastructure in this village. We're a very small, tight-knit community. 
Yes, we will be welcoming them and speak to them, absolutely not a problem, but that is not enough. What are these people going to do? Despite the understandable local anxiety, if the government can make a success of the asylum accommodation centre here, it could pave the way for other similar camps. You only need to walk through the centre of this village to see exactly what locals fear in terms of their community being completely overrun. It's tiny. The main street here has one shop and not much else. So with the prospect of hordes of young men hanging around here, the concern is understandable. Those worries are being compounded by several incidents of concern in some areas where asylum seekers have been housed, including this one in Windsor, where a group of schoolgirls videoed as they were propositioned by a couple of asylum seekers. You know we're 15? Yeah, how old are you? 21. You know we're 15? Cool. Us. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. we're 15. She likes me. You're 21 and you're asking for our snaps. We're 15. Walk on, bruv. Walk on. They're young girls, bruv. Walk on. Thames Valley Police has confirmed it's investigating this incident. Olga Mathias, who's campaigned against the Linton on Ooze Centre, believes it's been ill thought out and will end in disaster. Something appalling or several appalling somethings will happen. The Home Office has no track record of successfully delivering any policy that they've invented. Um, and I use the word invented deliberately because this has definitely not been thought through. The issue of where to accommodate the growing number of asylum seekers is a major headache for the government. Last month, every local authority in the country became part of the National Dispersal Scheme, which will see even more of their housing stock used to accommodate asylum seekers. The pressure on housing stock, on hotels, the need to adapt old military bases will continue as long as the small boats keep coming across the channel. And for the moment at least, there's no end in sight to that. Mark White, GB News. Well, given that over 9,000 people have crossed the channel so far this year, with more coming today and even more expected tomorrow, this could mean Linton on Ooze is coming somewhere close to you very soon. Well, joining me live from Linton tonight is Mark White. Mark, I remember a similar plan to house asylum seekers at the Napier Barrack, Shorncliffe, in Folkestone. And I remember, you know, despite the fact these barracks were good enough for national servicemen and good enough for the army, the barracks were deemed to be not good enough for asylum seekers. Uh, and in the end, some of them set fire to the place. What's to say that Linton on Ooze meets the standards that are now demanded? Well, the Home Office say that they have been redeveloping the site to make sure that they do indeed meet the standards that are required. Uh, with Napier Barracks, of course, you had human rights groups and uh, their lawyers who were there representing them and complaining uh, about the state of the barracks there. Of course, the difference with Napier Barracks was it was at a time uh, of the COVID pandemic where people were being kept in close proximity to each other. So a lot of the concern at Napier was around just how uh, 
uh, unsuitable. It was claimed uh, the uh, accommodation was really for having people socially distanced. They weren't able to do that. Napier is still being used to some extent. Uh, and I think even here at Linton on News, if it is a successful model that's adopted here, then I think we could see similar projects and other military installations, government-owned buildings going forward because, Nigel, they have to do something with these people. The fact is that to the year, the year to March, there was 55,000 asylum seekers uh, who have lodged uh, claims for asylum in this country. 31,000 of those, the vast majority in the year to March, were people who have come across on small boats. As you say, there is no end in sight to that. It is continuing. Each week, each month that passes, thousands more are requiring to be housed. They're trying to house them more in council houses and rented accommodation. We've heard there are about 30,000 rooms in hotels across the country being used on a daily basis. Really, uh, if you're looking to put them in a place in significant numbers, you're looking like, uh, you're looking at the likes of uh, former military installations where you can get 1,500 at a time in here. But of course, for the local people in this very beautiful village, that is but, extremely upsetting. But even 1,500 at a time, if 100,000 come this year, means Linton on Ooze is coming to somewhere near you very soon. Mark, Rwanda. I know that great faith and great hope was pinned on the Rwanda plan. Conflicting reports. On the one hand, we hear there are a series of legal challenges under the Human Rights Act. Well, no surprise there. On the other, we hear the, the government are absolutely determined in the next few weeks to start flights. Do you have an update on where we are with Rwanda? Well, the government is certainly determined. We've had in the last couple of weeks uh, these interim notices that have been sent out to about 100 asylum seekers who crossed uh, via these boats from a safe country, from France, uh, who have been put on notice. Uh, and just within the last few days, uh, 50 of those 100 have been given a notice of intent to send them to Rwanda uh, within the next week or so. Uh, we understand that uh, the first flights won't go before June the 7th, but after that they could go. However, having said that, the government is braced for legal action in the courts. Nothing as yet that uh, has actually started within the court process, but the second that the uh, removal process begins in earnest, uh, then those claims will be lodged in the courts and then we're into uh, how long is a piece of string territory in terms of how long that will actually take before eventually yeah. you could get them to Rwanda. In theory, Rwanda could work. It could be a deterrent for the criminal gangs on the other side of the channel if they think those who want to go across are going to be sent to Rwanda, then yeah. their model kind of collapses. That if. at least is the thinking of the government. But yeah. there's a lot of ifs. A lot of ifs. Mark White, great reporting. Thank you. That was Mark White from Linton on Ooze. Well, joining me is Sue Reid, Special Investigations Editor at the Daily Mail. Sue, with the Human Rights Act in place, with us still being signatories to ECHR, is Rwanda actually going to happen? I think Rwanda will happen. Um, I think it's going to be a long, hard uh, trail, that we're, but I think it will happen. People have, as Mark says, received their first notices. 
and the Rwandans very much want them to go. Mm -hmm. John Sun, you've got a very keen receiving end. And they get a lot of money for it. Yeah, and, yeah, and I, yeah. I mean, I understand that. But yeah, we're so used, aren't we, with all forms of deportation to last-minute legal challenges and it Indeed. not actually happening. I mean, tomorrow morning, there's a huge deportation planned from uh, Colnebrook in, near Heathrow, 300 people. The first flights to Erbil are planned tomorrow morning. Uh, right in to back to Iraq, the first for 10 years. But, I mean, well, I, I think it actually might happen because you haven't heard the lawyers say much about it this time. OK, well, I hope you're right. Um, I hope you're right. On the, I mean, on the bigger picture, you know, and we're talking here about people who are coming across the Channel who have no valid asylum claim, yeah. we're talking about deportations of criminals, and I understand yeah. that. On the bigger immigration picture, and it's obviously so easy to focus on the visibility of the channel, and you've been doing this for a long yeah. time, as I have. On the bigger picture, the fact that a million people in the year to... A million people in the year to March... Now, of course, we know that a lot of people leave as well. Yes. But a million people in one year have been given the right to stay yes. in the country. How does this fit in with the promises that Boris Johnson made to uphold Brexit... Uh, to, to take back control, dare one say. I mean, does the, do the Conservative Party even care about this? I think they do care about it, actually, but I think they, they're in a... I mean, look at what is happening in Linton on Ooze. I mean, this is an absolute... It's an EU model. It's the same as the uh, facility in Greece, which I've been mm -hmm. to in Samos. Uh, the south of France are looking at the same facility. The EU is paying for these facilities. This is the identical model, and yet it's been accepted there. But here, it hasn't been accepted. And the M local MP has said the most incredible things. Um, people are in fear of their lives in Linton on Ooze now. Children are running, will be scared to go to the playground. People will be prisoners in their own homes. Who on earth have we brought in, Nigel? Well, I, I, I mean... I, I I'm mean, not, it's quite incredible, well, isn't given, it? Given that none of them have ID documents, the answer is we don't know who we're Precisely. bringing Precisely. That was Hollingrate, the local MP. And and, go, yes, indeed, in the House of Commons yeah. said it. But, yeah. I mean, it, those incredible things to say... Strong things And to say. the refugee groups are saying the same. Um, and the only thing I can say about Linton on Ooze is that they are going to have bobbies on the beat. Well... That's more than anyone else has in Britain. <laughs> so, where does this all end? Well, I feel it might end in tears. Uh, so many are here, so many are waiting for asylum. When we've got over 100,000 people waiting for asylum, the whole asylum system is broken. Um, and that is the problem. And yet there are good people coming in. I promise you I know them. Sure. But there are some incredible rogues. Yeah. Uh, and violent rogues and people who should not be allowed in. But, but the thing is about uh, Linton on Ooze, it will provide a pause where pe can, people can be looked at properly. That is really what it's about. Well, I hope between Linton and Rwanda we get something that stems the flow, but I remain sceptical. And uh, Sue Reid, um, I'm sorry you couldn't be more optimistic this evening <laughs> with us, but I know you've studied it very closely for a long time. In a moment, we'll talk about honour abuse and our GPs ignoring the symptoms for fear of the R word. And it's Jubilee week. I'll tell you where you tonight can go and get a free pint of beer. I promise.
So what to do? What to do with the huge number of asylum seekers coming across the English Channel and in the back of lorries? Is it to be hotels or camps like Linton on Ooze or something else? Maureen says, back in the countries they started off from. Mm-hmm. Bev says, house them in the Channel until they're processed, not in hotels. Well, we'd need sort of prison ships for that, I think. One viewer says, Gary Lineker's house. I like that. Flo says, house them by all means, but back in the countries they originated from, they're not our responsibility. Fed up with the UK taxpayer picking up the tab. And finally, Richard says their boats shouldn't be allowed into British waters in the first place. Now, a report, an important report, I think, from the Centre for Social Justice, talking about honour abuse. What is honour abuse? Well, it is within certain communities if people break what are considered to be socially acceptable bounds of behaviour. How does honour abuse manifest itself? Well, like many other forms of domestic abuse, it can in the end, of course, even lead to honour killings, forced marriages and many other things. And Christina Radoni, head of the Family Policy at the Centre for Social Justice, joins me. Christina, are we in this world where doctors are fearful for calling out honour abuse when they see it? because they might get called racist. Absolutely. I mean, we have spoken to not only many frontline workers like uh, doctors themselves, nurses, health visitors, and lots and lots of survivors who are all saying they're terrified. It's, you know, they're paralyzed by the fear of litigation or uh, the accusation of being a racist, being a bigot. Um, they, they look upon the victims as they come in and they think, oh my gosh, she is, or he is, because remember, a third of all domestic abuse victims are male. Which is, which is incredible. A fact that gets I know, completely, completely overlooked. Completely overlooked. Um, and maybe the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial will raise the profile of this. Well, maybe a bit early to say, but... No, <laughs> but, 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 but just the fact that they're in there and that there is a man who's saying, I was also abused, I think that's raising the profile. But, um, but with honour abuse, what we're seeing is uh, GPs who pretend that nothing is being said and pretend that what she's... Uh, sporting in terms of bruises or uh, a broken tooth or or just mental health issues is something that is not part and of their duty of care. Which communities is this happening in? Well, there are uh, South Asian communities, there are Gypsy Roma traveller communities, there are very small Christian sects in which this is happening, and Jewish communities, Orthodox Jewish communities. So it's not predominantly a Muslim community? No, problem. this is not. This is something that is part of a hidden crime, which is domestic abuse, and of even more secretive um, communities who absolutely you know, sit on you if you try to look beyond extraordinary. the, the Now, that is extraordinary. Curtains. Now, Ian Duncan-Smith, who, of course, is very much one of the founders of this think tank, is suggesting that you drop using the term honour abuse and just lump this in with the rest of domestic abuse. But surely that doesn't make sense. Absolutely makes sense, because, first of all, listen to what the definition of the Crown Prosecution Service is. It is a crime or an incident that involves violence 
or the threat of violence mm -hmm. and is perpetrated in order perhaps to protect an individual or a group. Come on, that's a mouthful. How many victims out there recognize themselves in that? Very few. But much worse, the word honor, it risks legitimizing things like rape, does it, female fetus does it, does it? Yes. The moment you say honor, somebody's out there saying, you know, it's my honor. I've got to protect it. I've got to defend it. You can't defend abuse ever. No. Well, Christina, I have to say thank you for giving a very enlightening little talk on this. I, I've learned a couple of things tonight I didn't know. Not sure I agree with you in lumping it in with domestic abuse, but never mind. And thank you and keep up the good work at the centre for social justice. Well, somebody else who has looked at this and campaigned on this is Jasvinda Sangira, CBE, a survivor of forced marriage and founder of the charity Karma Nirvana. Jasvinda, welcome to the programme. Um, what's your take? What's your take on doctors, frankly, just not doing their job? Well, Nigel, um, I can't talk without first letting you know what my experience is. I was born in Britain. England is my home. I don't know any country, bar this country. My parents were Sikh. I'm one of seven sisters. I have one brother and we were raised within a family dynamic whereby we were taught a whole set of rules that cause dishonour on my family. So I have to disagree with your person that's just spoken. I cannot talk about this issue as a survivor without talking about the concept of honour. So we were taught that we couldn't integrate with British society. My mother actually said to me, the worst insult I could bring to her front door, not just me, the sisters, is that you're behaving like a white woman. Now, what she meant by that, these bigoted views that clearly exist within these communities and families still today, is that you can't integrate, you can't go out with your friends, you can't wear lipstick, you can't wear makeup. There's so many things you can't do. You can't even choose who you want to marry. If you do these things, you are bringing shame and dishonor on the family. And what we were taught was there was a risk. We understood that we had to conform to a set of belief and value systems that prevented us from having independence. This is coercive and controlling behavior. But in all the thousands of victims I have supported since 93, set up a charity, none of them can speak about this experience without speaking about honor-based abuse. Back in 2008, then PM was Gordon Brown. And I remember making this point that in one West Yorkshire region, a hundred South Asian females went missing off a school roll in one academic year. Just like that, they disappeared. Nobody asked where they had gone. And I made the point, if this was a hundred white British females, this country would be jumping up and down and asking where they went. They didn't because of the fear of and being trained to be culturally sensitive. When I went missing in school, and let's not forget, all my sisters were taken out of school at 15, British born, forced to marry strangers, nobody looked at where they were, nobody asked the question, nobody treated us as, as a safeguarding issue. This is a so, safeguarding so, so Jasvinda, issue. So, how do we how do we change this? How do we deal with this? As I say, you know, uh, the report today suggesting that doctors just find this too difficult. What do we need to do to improve? And I know you've been working with victims over these years. What do we need to do? And by the way, I'm, I agree with you. I think keeping this as a category of honour abuse is the right thing to do. I'm absolutely with you on that. What do we do to improve things? What we've got to do is deal with this as a safeguarding issue. Look, 
our country are very clear. What is child protection? What is, what is a vulnerable adult look like? This has got to be dealt with not as a cultural issue, as a different issue. Cultural acceptance does not mean accepting the unacceptable. Let's get back, back to safeguarding. Safeguarding children and young people, what does that mean? Safeguarding the most vulnerable of adults that don't have mental capacity, etc in the context of honour abuse or child marriages or forced marriages. That's the conversation we have to have. And we've got to give our professionals the confidence to do that, to say, if you joined the police force or a GP, etc., you signed up to protect people, to preserve life, etc., in this space, that comes over and above cultural issues. Yeah, I know. I think you're, listen, you're, I think you're absolutely right. And we need people like you to put a bit of backbone and a bit of spirit into our public servants across this country. Jasmina, thank you for joining me. We'll definitely thank have you, you back on again to talk about this subject. Thank and thank you. you. Thank you. Now, it's Jubilee week. And wow, what a week it is. And it's something to remember. There isn't going to be another, another platinum jubilee. Um, not in our lifetimes, maybe not ever. And that, so it is a really, really big, big moment. And yet... The way some local councils are behaving is simply beyond belief. I visited this morning a street in Orpington. A guy there has set everything up. Um, he's going to have a, you know, a, a big event on Thursday evening. And one of the things he did was to put bunting, bunting from one big street lamp across the road to another street lamp. And on Sunday morning, there was a knock at the door and Bromley Council had sent a contractor. <laughs> and there it is. There's the contractor taking down the bunting. I mean, it's almost beyond belief. And the reason he was given is that a risk assessment had not been done. A stress test had not been done to find out whether, I mean, you just can't believe some of this stuff, can you? But to find out whether the lampposts could take the weight of the bunting. It is just beyond belief. We've been in touch with Bromley Council and Councillor Nicholas Bennett, Bromley's Executive Councillor for Transport, Highways and Road Safety, said there is no more patriotic borough anywhere with more than 300 street parties taking place to celebrate Her Majesty's special weekend. I understand that the bunting and flag flag stretched across the road, which could cause problems for motorists should it flap loose and come down across the windscreen of a car. But a sensible compromise should have been discussed with residents. I was not consulted about this. Oh, look, you know, it's not my fault, Gov. Somebody else in the council did it. It's nonsense. Furthermore, the bunting was actually taken down, not just from this road, but from Orpington High Street as well. Now, Michael Gove wrote to councils up and down the country to say, please don't go crazy on red tape. Use a little bit of discretion. Clearly, many are not. And others are being told they can't plan last minute street parties without permission. It's fantastic that up to 15 million people will be attending official events. That is just great. Uh, but I do feel the way local councils, in this case Bromley, are behaving is quite beyond the pale. But let's move to good news. And the good news is imperial measurements will be our jubilee gift from the Prime Minister. Why this wasn't done a long time ago after the Brexit vote, I don't know. It will no longer be against the law. 
it will no longer be an offence to be asked for and sell a pound of bananas. And I'm delighted with that. I've been involved with this campaign right from the very start. I fought to keep the pound sterling, but I also fought to keep the pound or the kilogram. It's entirely up to you as a consumer or a business to choose yourselves. And I think the fact that it's been against the law, the fact that five people got convictions for this is monstrous. And I want kids in school in future to be taught both systems. Imperial measurements are an important part of our cultural heritage. It is, after all, the language of Shakespeare. But I also want to see those five people pardoned, because, frankly, for them to be carrying records, and one of them, Steve Thoburn, the first metric martyr who died of a heart attack at the age of 39, deserves a pardon. But I also like imperial measurements because I like a pint. Yep, no, absolutely. And from this jubilee, the official crown can go back on our pint glasses. Well, one brewery, Green King, announced overnight that in 408 of their pubs, you could go in today and you could buy a pint of beer for six pence, which is what it cost at the time of the coronation in 1952. So I very quickly sought out the Buff pub in Orpington. Sadly, it was against the law to sell a pint for sixpence because that is below, far below, the level of excise. So I went in and gave the code, which is 1952, and I got a free pint of Green King. And I was very, very grateful to them, grateful to the brewery, grateful to the Buff. But this offer... This offer is on until closing time tonight. Any of you want to claim your free pint, have a quick look, find out where your nearest Green King pub is. And well done them as a brewer. What a great initiative. Shame they couldn't sell it for sixpence. I was going to pay with a tenpence and say keep the change. More thoughts as to where we should send asylum seekers, what we should do with them. Dot says, in Rwanda. One viewer says, those lovely country villages a lot of the woke live in, the rich champagne socialist areas. John says, no hotels, no old army barracks, no old air force barracks. Yes to Rwanda. Brian says, no hotels, send them straight back to France. There is, it seems, no sympathy amongst any of you for the 30,000 hotel rooms that are being paid for by you, the taxpayers, a night at the cost of £5 million a day. Uh, no support for the Linton on Ooze proposal. And I'm guessing, partly for fear, that one of these camps could spring up close to you. I repeat, we're on course for 100,000 people to cross the English Channel this year on small boats. We're told many of that are coming now are coming from Afghanistan. But how can we know when they destroy their documents and as we revealed here on GB News, when I was out in my channel a few weeks ago, they literally throw their mobile phones into the sea and they get a new iPhone, which you pay for when they arrive in the UK. It is not good enough. Now, the situation in Ukraine is looking pretty serious. Is Russia close to taking Donbass? What is that going to mean in the end? Well, joining me is a Ukrainian MP. She's quite well known for toting a Kalashnikov for being prepared to fight. She'd like to take out Vladimir Putin. Yes, Kira Rudik will be my guest in a moment on Talking Pints.
Well, I'm back in Paddington tonight in the GB News Tavern. It has opened, although I did go to a Green King pub earlier, as I mentioned, and it's time for Talking Pints. And one Ukrainian MP who's certainly been making waves in all of this is Kira Rudik. Uh, Kira joins me on Talking Pints. Very welcome to the show and thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Nigel. It's a pleasure being here. Before we get on to very serious issues, not just for Ukraine, but for the world, just a little bit about you, because you've had a successful career before going into politics and chief operating officer of the Ukrainian division of the smart doorbell maker Ring, which was sold for a billion to Amazon. Yes, exactly. Just a few years ago. I have to ask, did you have some share options? Well, I'm not supposed to be talking about it still, so... Okay, okay. But you can, uh, but you can assume that I did well. We can assume that you, you were very successful and congratulations. And on the back of that, you decided to launch a political party, a political career. What was it about, what was it about your party? Holos, is that the right pronunciation? Yes. Uh, why did you launch Holos? What was needed in your view in Ukrainian politics? So Holos is a liberal party. It's the first liberal party ever elected into Ukrainian parliament. It's a progressive party, party of future. We stand for the European values, for joining NATO, for joining EU, for making sure all those liberal values that usually are overlooked and overseen, uh, that they are being voiced in Ukrainian parliament. We are very young, but we are extremely progressive, modern, and we are supported by young Ukrainians who want to live in truly European Ukraine. I think there is a big difference, I would suggest, Kira, between Europe and believing in a European idea and the group of old men in Brussels that run the thing called the European <laughs> Union. Um, and, you know, we've left the European Union, but it doesn't mean we're not engaged and interested in what's happening um, in Europe, of course we are. And in many ways with Ukraine, whether, whether we agree or disagree with Boris Johnson's stance, it's being freed of European Union that's allowed us to do it. I just wonder, and by the way, I do understand, you know, people in your position saying, look, we want to reach out to the West and say goodbye to the bad old days of the East. I completely understand that psychology. But are you now looking at the European Union in a different light after the hypocrisy of Germany, uh, the promises they still haven't made to you. Is it making you reconsider? Well, it does not make us reconsider the direction because we in Ukraine have shown with our actions that we stand for democratic, European, you can call it differently, all those progressive values even more than some Europeans do. And this is why uh, I'm never be sure uh, that as well as I am right now, that we made the right choice to move to the West, to move to the progressive, um, futuristic ideas rather than staying with Putin. Look, he is very adamant of what he is building. He says, I'm rebuilding Russian Empire, I'm rebuilding Soviet Union. We in Ukraine, I came to politics to digitalize the country. We are the first country that has the passport in your phone. Most of the governmental services online digitalized. Oh, I think you're <laughs> further ahead than we are in some yeah, regards. Yes, you are. You are, Nigel. <laughs> and that's why I'm so proud. And that's why I don't want this man to drag my country back into his, like, whatever he is building. We are building something different, something new, something modern. 
And this is what I stand for. This is what my political party stands for. And we will continue doing this. We continue building the country of the future rather than him dragging I, us I to was the always, past. Kira, I understand all of that and, and the passion with which you express it. I was always very worried that continued eastward expansion of NATO was a provocative act against Putin, was something he would use as an argument with his own people to say, look, they're encircling us. And indeed, he is using that argument. But when you look at Putin, and I know how you feel about him, you know, and you, you know, you've been there with the Kalashnikov and you say that you will fight with the men to defend your, and I believe you, I believe you. I will. I know I believe you, absolutely. Is Putin a rational player? Uh, I think yes, he is rational. Uh, look, he may have made some mistakes at the beginning of the war, but what we see right now, he's being very rational, he is waiting his steps, and he is going according to the plan that he had in 2014 to get the land bridge to Crimea, to get the uh, uh, eastern territories at their administrative fullest, and he is going according to his plan. I mean, the people of Crimea, the people of Crimea who since 2014 have been part of Russia effectively, they appear to want to be part of Russia. Um, that's a questionable issue because after eight years well, being under Russia, well, you may have considered yourself Russia, but it does not mean that there are no other nations living there like Crimea and Tatar and Ukrainians who still want to be Ukraine. Uh, of course, but it would appear he has majority support in Crimea. Maybe right now he does, but all okay. in all, uh, my eight question, years ago... My question, Kira, and this is such a complex issue and very difficult for a British audience, is everything in Donbass since 2014 has been difficult for us to comprehend and understand. And there's a war going on, and there's a massive propaganda war going on from both sides. You know, are the Azov brigade or neo-Nazis, aren't they? All this stuff goes... But all this stuff goes back and forth. Do, is it your strong view that the majority of people living in those districts in Donbass want to be part of Ukraine not, and, and not part of Russia? Before the war started, it could have been questionable. But right now, when they see the devastation that the war brings, we even see right now people from the temporary occupied territories moving to Ukraine. Because they see the terrors, because Russia is not bringing them anything but atrocities. And... This is why um, this is why they're moving, and we see more and more refugees coming from these particular territories. And are there people going to Russia as well? Uh, there probably are, but uh, uh, again, not at the scale. You this know, is, this is why it's so complicated yes. for us. I mean, I completely understand Kiev's position yes. in this. Completely understand it, and 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 actually, I think, I think that I mentioned this earlier about Boris Johnson. But I think generally, the British public have felt. You know, that, that, that Kyiv and Western Ukraine absolutely deserve some support from us, which they got. And you can drive around the country, drive around this country, and you'll see Ukrainian flags. I mean, it's yeah, quite, I do. I mean, outside of London, I mean, wherever you go, I mean, it's very, very interesting. So there is a great deal of support. On Donbass, we are, you know, very, very confused. But let me ask you this. You think Putin's a rational player, in which case you don't think he's going to use a tactical nuclear weapon? Look, um, he already destroyed Mariupol. He destroyed it to the ground without using the tactical nuclear weapon. 
Because right now, and I come from Davos, uh, that it was my previous trip, and I can tell you, I talk to, not to European countries as we usually do, but to their countries throughout the world. Right now, the support is actually divided. And for, but for those countries like India, like uh, African countries, mm. uh, South American. China? China possibly using of tactical nuclear weapons will be no go. Right now, they are kind of neutral. They are on the fence. But if Putin, and I do believe that he is rational, would reserve to using it, uh, they, they would try to be as far from this toxicity as possible. And I don't think right. that he would risk that. So the argument is that if he was to do that, he would lose all his support or at least lose those that are he will He will lose uh, most of the support. No, no countries would want to repeat the Second World War story when they turned out to be on the wrong side, right? And then like feel the results of the whole, being pariahs of the world. So right now, the countries that are on the fence is the main auditory, both for us and for Putin. Because for us is to say that he's evil, and for him to say, well, not, not so evil. Well, he says you're corrupt as a country, and indeed Ukraine has had serious corruption problems. How does it have anything to do with him, um, him throwing his forces in? No, 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 no. Uh, by the way, I wasn't yeah. justifying. I wasn't yeah. justifying. I was just, ex just explaining there is this to and fro of, of, of language that goes on. Kira, how does this end? I mean, I know that... You know, your leader has said there can be no negotiations until Russians completely leave all Ukrainian soil. So is this a, is this literally now a war to the end, a war to the very death? Yes. And but, you know why? But the because cost of that could be horrific. But it is already horrific. But it, could be, but it could be that times three or four or... Or ten. But the question is, if... For example, assume like we, we went into peaceful negotiation. Who is this person or a group of leaders who will assure us that Putin will keep his part of the bargain? We have been at war with him for eight years. Mm -hmm. And I could tell you, as rational as he is, he never did that. And he is known for never keeping his part of the deal. I he, understand. Kira, I completely... So no, I understand that. And, you know, in the early 1940s, we took the view that... that the leader of Germany was not a man that we could negotiate with. But in normal circumstances, in normal circumstances, you know, Churchill, one of Churchill's great sayings, jaw, jaw is better than war, war. That you should have negotiations, there should be back channels. And I tell you what, what I've been Look. thinking, I've been thinking, just a second. I know that Macron has been speaking to Putin. The American president, well, he's not playing a leadership role of any kind. Shouldn't we at least, shouldn't the West at least, or it could be somebody from the Middle East, I don't know, shouldn't somebody keep lines of communication open to Putin? They can do it, it's just useless, in my opinion. For eight years, we have been fighting a war with him on our eastern territories. So, for eight years, he was promising all those Western leaders, including Macron, including uh, presidents of United States, <clears throat> he is keeping ceasefire, and he was not. So, like, what's the point then? What's the point? And what happens? You know, like how a Russian generals calling his strategy salami technique mm. because it's yeah. cutting little bit slices by little, bit. by little bit by little bit, and he wouldn't stop until he stopped. If, and this is why we are stopping him. If Donald Trump was in the White House, would Putin have invaded? 
Well, it's like an iffy thing that the history does not appreciate. <laughs> I think it's very interesting. I think, I think the weakness over Afghanistan, I think the unconditional American withdrawal led to much of this. But so for you, it's a fight to the end, whatever the cost. Well, yeah, that's our strategy. And it's very simple because I don't see any other better strategy. Like, again, let's imagine, let's assume that we have come to peace with Putin and next day he continued the war. Then what? No, I understand that. And what would your message to German Chancellor Schultz be? Um, well, people respect the ones who keep their promise. So sending us 40 or what, 60 helmets is not the promise <laughs> that he gave us. And Kira, I must ask you, the amount of gas that is still being transshipped through Ukraine into Western Europe, into Germany, Italy, why are you still allowing that gas to cross your land? This is our security. And you're being paid for it. Yeah, well, no, we are already not being paid for it. Okay, that's but changed. That's changed. Yes, it's changed, but, but in the early part of the war, yeah. you were. We, uh, this is our security guarantees right now. As long as it's going through, he is uh, not going full speed first. And second, but we you're are allowing, you're allowing the Germans keeping, to well, finance Putin's whoa, whoa, war. Whoa, whoa, This is on Germans to stop doing that. And not on us to say, okay, we are barbarians who are cutting your pipeline. Don't you think that there are people in Ukraine who want to do that and we are stopping them? Because sure there, is a, there is a difference between us and Putin that we are keeping isn't, on isn't the legal side. Isn't it bizarre that your friends, are, your friends in the European Union are funding the war against you? Oh, of course. You know like how much every day is being paid to Putin? Getting on for a billion euros. Yes, billion euros. So if I was better in maths, we could have calculated how much they have paid while we were talking. <laughs> but if you can imagine like that, that's like an enormous amount of money. And that's why we, instead of like saying, okay, we will cut the pipe, we think, okay, dear friends, we are as democratic country asking you to make the sanctions. And the sanctions are not happening. They're dragging their feet, hoping that what? That the autumn will be warm? Well, well I want like, to everybody to remember that all the hurdles, you, by, the, uh, by the way, Nigel, you know what was the first question that I got here in the United Kingdom? Where is the sunflower oil? Yeah. From, no, from the I stores. know, I know. And I can tell you where it is. And grain and everything. So can, yes, every, no, so no. every single hurdle right now, the uh, energy bills is Putin's fault. Yeah. The sunflower oil and other um, food. Uh, Kira, I get it it's all. His. I get it all. Now, we're out of time, but I have just been told one of my questions from Barrage the Farage, one of my audience members, asks, and we've got you've got less than a minute to answer this. Will Putin take the Donbass? He will try, and we will do everything to stop him. But will he? We will do everything to stop him. I'm not a future predictor, but I can, I'm a future predictor for Ukrainian army that we will be stopping him with every cost. Remember, at the first day of war, everybody said that we wouldn't stand for five days. It's three months and going, and we are standing and fighting him back. So I have very good prospects that well, you, we well, will... There you are. And, you know, I have to say, the strong stand that you've taken, uh, and you, Kira, and many others, um, it, it reminds people in this country of what generations before, before us did when they stood up and fought. And thank you for coming on the programme. That's it from me this evening. I'll be back with you tomorrow evening at 7pm.